Genesis chapter 49. For the past seven weeks, we have been preaching through a series. I used to say a little short series, but I think once you're seven weeks in, you've forfeited the right to say that. Uh, But we've been studying through a series on the blessings upon Jacob's sons. As we have studied through this, we have tried to keep in mind that there are two basic understandings of this passage, and they are not mutually exclusive one of the other. They're not contradictory. But there is a duality of purpose in these things. In one sense, we can understand these statements dispositionally. And what we mean by that is this, that Jacob knew his sons. And what he was saying, he was saying about them. Uh, Jacob, of course, is on his deathbed, and his sons are no longer little boys, nor are they young men. But these are grown men that have children, and some of them grandchildren, of their own at this point in their life. And Jacob has watched them for many long years and observed their behavior. And from their dispositions, he makes some comments and statements about what they can expect out of life and of themselves. We understand, too, that these can be applied in a dispensational sense. And you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, in verse number 1, it says this, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And that phrase, last days, has very distinct and deliberate prophetic connotations. Uh, He was not just using that term by happenstance. Now, I know nothing in this Bible is by happenstance or coincidence. But it is very important, the phrasing that Jacob used, because that phrase, last days, uh, has prophetic tones to it. And they basically refer to anything from the times of the Gentiles, uh, which we are in right now. That's what Paul spoke about. He said, this know that perilous, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And we're in the last days. But it also relates to uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus, and it relates to the Great Tribulation period, and it relates to the time of the Antichrist and the one world government and things of that sort. And you say, you're a nut preacher. No, I'm a Bible believer. Amen? And uh, if you don't think things are going to a one world government, just look who's holding hands nowadays. I mean, it ought to tell you something when, uh, is, when uh, Muslims who will uh, throw homosexuals off of the top of buildings and stone them to death, when uh, Muslims who abuse every right that a woman could ever hope to have, uh, when the left-wing progressive liberals will hold hands with Muslims. Uh, They are completely polar opposites ideologically, but that doesn't matter. They have a common enemy, and that is Bible Christianity. Because that, they're willing to hold hands. I mean, things are winding down, neighbor. I don't know if you realize that. Things aren't winding up. They're winding down. And we're coming to the end of this thing. And uh, Jacob is speaking about the timeline. Uh, We would call it a history, most of it now, but really at this point it's all prophecy concerning what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. And as you look at each and every son, you gain an aspect and a perspective of the history of the Jewish people and the prophecies concerning them. And I won't go through all of them. We're getting too far to review now. Uh, but you can see it through, through Reuben, which I think is representative of when they came out of Egypt. And they're no longer a family, but now they're a nation. And uh, on down through Simeon and Levi and the division of the kingdoms. And uh, we preached last week on the tribe of Dan, which I believe points to the time of Jacob's sorrow and the great tribulation period and the time in which the Jews are going to be persecuted. 
And this evening, I'd like to take a few moments and look at verse number 19. And I want us to consider the prophecy that Jacob makes to his son Gad. Look at it with me. It's just one verse. We'll read it twice and then pray. The Word of God says this, Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Let's read it again. Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the time that You've given us. And Lord, we know that we're here by divine appointment. We're not here by accident. So help us to view it as such, as a meeting with You, Lord, and as a gaining of help from heaven. And I pray that You'd feed our souls tonight and that we'd yield unto Your Spirit. Lord, I love You and I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we have studied through these messages, we've given a little title to each of them. And tonight I believe that when we look at the tribe of Gad and the prophecy concerning them, we have a word about spiritual warfare as it relates to the Jews, but I believe also as it relates to the church. Now you understand the Word of God says that all the things in the Old Testament, these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world will come. Everything in this Bible, it may not be written to us, but it's all written for us. Somebody say amen to that. We can gain something from every portion, every page of the Word of God. Those genealogies that you have to trudge through when you're reading through the Bible, there's things to learn from. And there's truth to glean from. And those uh, we might call obscure Bible stories, for instance, like the blessings of Jacob on his sons, if we take a little closer look, we might begin to see some things that would help us. You say, preacher, what does this mean to me today? Well, are you in a spiritual warfare? Every one of us is. We tend to believe that we're only in spiritual warfare when things are going bad. But the reality is that we're in spiritual warfare all the time. When things are going good, you're still in the battle. The battle may be different. It may not be a, a battle, an assault upon your, your mind or your emotions, but oftentimes the battle is to uh, war ourselves against complacency and apathy. And that's just as much of a battle as it is when we're struggling as when we're resting. And as we read this passage of Scripture, I understand it has very distinct application to the Jewish people. And if you want to understand the, under the interpretation of it concerning uh, the dispensational sense of it, I believe this represents for us the history of the nation of Israel as an assaulted people culminating in the assault that's going to take place during the Great Tribulation period. I believe this pictures for us a group of people that are under attack. The tribe of Gad was on the northeastern portion of the nation of Israel, there by the desert, and the Ammonites and the, uh, uh, the Philistines and all various manners of uh, sort of Bedouin-dwelling people uh, were there close to them, and they were constantly under assault and constantly had to fight back the enemy. And I'm keenly aware that that's the dynamic that the Jewish nation lives in today. If you turn on the news, you find there's always somebody lobbing a rocket into Israel. And it's always, to, in a sense, been that way. And when the Jews were scattered, they didn't cease to be hated. They just became hated wherever they were at, as opposed to hated in Palestine. But that has always been a boiling pot, that portion of the world. And it is today as well. And there is constant fighting over there. And there's not going to be a peace until there's a false peace that is brokered by the Antichrist. 
And after that false peace is broken, I'm not going to re-preach my message. We preached it all last week. But after that false peace is broken, uh, after three and a half years of persecution, the Prince of Peace is going to come, and He's going to reign in righteousness. The phrasing that's used in this is actually quite interesting. When you consider, and I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but when you consider the repetition of this idea of an army and of a troop, the language evokes the idea of marauding bandits that would fall upon the tribe of Gad. And I think that's been indicative of the history of the nation of Israel, don't you? It's never been a single enemy. It's always been every enemy that's been after the nation of Israel. Uh, whenever they became a nation once again in 1948, the first thing that happened was about six nations declared war on them. And they've been fighting ever since then. And the only thing that Middle Eastern Arabs seem to all agree on is that they hate the Jews and they'll do whatever it takes to exterminate them. And I want you to listen carefully to me. If you think that they want a peaceful coexistence, you've swallowed the biggest UN pill that they sell. Because they don't want a peaceful coexistence. They want them obliterated. And uh, the leader of Iran will flat out say as much. They won't be happy until the Jews are wiped off the face of the earth. I'm, I'm thankful that, and I don't believe that Netanyahu is a saved man. Don't misunderstand me. I don't believe he's saved. But I do believe he's been raised up for an hour. And I believe that he's got enough grit and enough gut about him that he doesn't mind living in that environment. He's willing to stand and fight. Somebody say amen to that. I'm thankful that God has given the Jewish people somebody like that. But I don't want to preach on the Jewish history tonight. I want to consider what it means to you and me. Because though I understand the Jewish people are in the middle of a battle, and they always have been, and they always will be until their king reigns. And though I understand that they have been overcome time and time again, but that the promises of God are yea and amen, and that one day they'll be a part of that millennial kingdom and that millennial reign that will take place, and I believe that with my whole heart, I don't doubt one bit that Jesus is going to sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem. Not one bit. I believe that with my whole heart. I understand, too, you came tonight because you need something for you. <laughs> and as I look at this passage, I'm reminded of a few things that I think are very relevant and poignant to the time that we live in. I think as we look at this passage and we consider what it means to you and, and me, I think we see a gentle reminder about our striving that we're going to have. Notice the phrase that's given. Immediately after Gad's name is mentioned, it says this, A troop shall overcome him. Now, I don't know about you, but that'd probably be pretty discouraging if you were Gad. <laughs> you had sat there and you had listened to all the blessings that had been bestowed upon uh, Joseph, and you had heard all the wonderful things that had been said about Zebulun, and you had even heard, uh, though it was sort of mixed with a little bit of rebuke, the things that the Lord had said about Issachar and about Dan. And now Jacob turns his attention to you, and he says your name, and the very next thing that he says is, Gad, there's going to be armies come out against you. But whether he liked it or not, that's the stark reality of the world he was going to live in. Can I remind you something? You don't sign up for the spiritual battle. You're in the spiritual battle whether you signed up for it or not. The second you got born again, a big old bullseye was drawn on your back, and you became a trophy for Satan. He knows he can't send you to hell, but he can wreck everything that gives Christ glory in your life. And he's made up his mind. And we may have days when we don't feel like getting up and going to church or feeling good or, or being a witness, but let me remind you of this. Satan never takes a day off. And the spiritual warfare we in isn't going to stop 
just because we get upset and try to take our ball and go home. Somebody say amen to that. Just because you wake up tomorrow and say, I'm weary and I can't keep fighting, that doesn't mean the fighting's going to stop. All that means is the devil's going to gain ground. You say, that's not fair, preacher. Well, that's reality. That's the world we live in. And that's the spiritual warfare that we are going to experience. You don't have to go looking for a fight. A fight's going to come to you. Uh, You raise children in this world, the devil's going to be after them. You don't have to sign up for it. That's just the truth. The devil's going to be after them. You've got a spouse in this world that we live in. You've got somebody you love and care about. and You've got a marriage you want to honor Christ. The devil's after that. And you don't have to decide that that's the case. That's just the reality of it. You've got a testimony at your workplace and you want to be a witness to those around you. Understand that the devil's going to do everything he can to destroy that and to, to smear mud all over the name of Christ. And it doesn't matter whether we like that. and It doesn't matter whether that encourages us. That's the reality of the matter. We're in a spiritual war. Part of the reason we're losing so badly is because we won't acknowledge that we're in a spiritual war. I don't mean to be overwhelmingly political tonight, uh, but if you can suffer through all of it on the news networks, I guess you can tolerate me for a few minutes. We're losing a war in our country right now. And we're losing it because nobody will say we're in a war in our country right now. On American soul, it's becoming an, a, a weekly reality, if not a daily reality, that someone in the name of Allah is creating violence and mischief in our country. And that's just what the news lets us know about. We do not know what they don't let us know about. And we're losing ground in that. We're losing ground in that because nobody has stomach enough to call it what it is. It's a warfare. It's a warfare. Those people want to destroy our way of life. Listen, I'm sorry. I didn't come to make you comfortable tonight. I came to preach what God laid on my heart. They may. uh, the, The fact is no one has stomach enough to call it what it is. It is not their ethnicity that is causing them to try to destroy us. It is not their government that is causing them to try to destroy us. It's not their poverty that is causing them to try to destroy us. It is not their ignorance that is causing them to try to destroy us. It's not their illiteracy that's causing them to try to destroy us. It's not their lack of feeling embraced that's causing us, uh, causing them to try to destroy us. Their religion is causing them to try to destroy us. Now, anybody that can't acknowledge that just chooses not to acknowledge it. I mean, you don't have to be real bright to realize that a man runs in with a bomb strapped on and shouts Allah Akbar. He means business. And he's there for religious reasons. But in this country, nobody has stomach enough to call that what it is. In fact, one of the only people in the country that is calling it what it is, people, people are getting ready to vote him in despite all of his failures and all of his flops and all of the things that are wrong in his life. It's okay. I told you, I didn't come to make you comfortable tonight. It don't matter. Oh, man. Okay. All right, Charlie, I will. Listen, it don't matter that he supported abortion two years ago. People are getting ready to vote him in just because he'll call it what it is. I know that's the reality. Look at the exit polling that's taking place. People would vote anyone in if they promised to fix the problems because nobody will acknowledge that there's problems. Nobody will own the warfare that's taking place. And our country is losing that battle. It's losing that battle. You say, that's tragic, preacher. How do we fix that? Well, I can tell you something more tragic. Something more tragic is this, that the church is losing a spiritual warfare because she won't acknowledge the warfare that's going on around us. 
Listen, it's no accident that things are getting worse. It's the mystery of iniquity that already worketh. It's the mystery of iniquity that already worketh. It is no accident that we see things today that you wouldn't have seen 40 years ago. It's no accident. Listen, young people are experiencing things in this day that we live in that most grown adults in this room have never experienced. And they're experiencing it by the fifth and sixth grade. Until we wake up and start calling it what it is, we're going to keep losing. We're going to keep losing this spiritual battle. And until we wake up and realize that something's right, we're going to continue to stay wrong. There's a reminder about our striving here. That was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> There's a reminder about our striving. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy 2, 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Hardness. We have the idea that once we become a Christian, all our problems go away, but that's not the reality of things. When we become a Christian, we all of a sudden have went from being an enemy of God but a friend with the world to now we're at peace with God but we're at enmity with the world. And now we're living in hostile territory. Somebody say amen to that. If you live for Christ, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes. It's going to be difficult sometimes. It's going to put you at odds with the majority sometimes. And you're going to have to endure hardness. If you don't expect that living for Christ is going to be difficult sometimes, you'll never live for Christ. I'm thankful for the times when God reaches down and gives us help. I'm thankful for the times when God swoops in and delivers us. But I'm also keenly aware that while we would wish that God would take Pharaoh out of the picture, sometimes God has it for us to stand up to Pharaoh and command that God's people let go. The truth is, we're not always going to have our enemies swept away from us and not have to face hardship. In fact, more often than not, we're going to have to stand against the, the tendencies and the current of this world. And that's not going to go away until we leave this world. It's always going to be that way. You say, that's discouraging, preacher. Well, it can be. It can be. But I'm glad that the Lord goes a little further. We see a reminder about our striving in the phrase, a troop shall overcome him. You're going to have battles. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to lose sometimes. You're going to fail sometimes. But guess what? We see a reminder about our station. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I don't see that. All I see is his name and then this phrase, a troop shall overcome him, and then he shall overcome. At the last, what do you mean station? Well, if you were to look closely at the name Gad, you would find that it has a meaning to it. And the meaning is actually the word troop. In fact, it's almost as though Jacob is looking at his son and saying, Son, you're a fighter, and so you're going to fight throughout your life. But we turn it around and look at it the other direction. And I've told you already tonight that there's going to be a fight. But can I just remind you that when you got saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you became a fighter in the Lord's army. I'm not talking about physical warfare, but I'm talking about spiritual warfare. And we look at us and we say, I can't do it. And the truth is, we in and of ourselves can't. But we understand, by virtue of that phrase, troop, what's being implied there? You know, there's a couple things it reminds me of. Can I share them with you? One is Gideon. Do you remember how the Lord approached Gideon? Uh, Gideon is hiding in a threshing floor, threshing his wheat, because he's afraid the Midianites, who were oppressing the nation of Israel at that time, was going to come and was going to take away the wheat that, was, that, that he had that he was threshing. He's literally hiding, trying to get the job done. I, I, I mean, he's hovering over his milk money, hoping the bully ain't going to come take it away. 
And the angel of the Lord appears before him and says this. He looks at me and he says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. I can sort of imagine that Gideon went, Who? Mighty man of valor? Do you not see what I'm doing? And he looked and totally befuddled and confused by what was taking place. But you know what? The angel of the Lord, and you don't have to believe this, although if you want to be right, you will, but the angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a theophany, a Christophany in the Old Testament. And you know what was being said here? The angel of the Lord looks at Gideon and he says, Gideon, I know what you look like to you, but I want to tell you what you look like to me. Maybe we could say it this way. Gideon, I know what you look like when it's just you. But since I showed up, now you're a mighty man of valor. You see, he says, Gad, and by doing that, he looks at his son, he says, you don't realize it, but when I see you, I see an army. When I see you, I see more than just you. There's kind of a New Testament example of that. Do you remember in uh, Mark chapter number 5? when Christ goes to heal the maniac of Gadara and he asks the demon his name, and the demon says, Legion, for we are many. Now, I understand that's in a negative sense, but in a positive sense, I believe the Lord would look at Gad and say that, Gad, you may feel all alone, but you have to remember that you're never really alone. The truth conveyed here is not that Gad in and of himself could do it, the truth conveyed here is that Gad in and of himself wouldn't have to do it. The fact is, we look at it and say, I can't do this alone. And you're right. But you better rejoice that you don't have to do it alone. Can I share a New Testament verse with you? It says in 1 John 4, 2-4, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, what was John saying there? John was saying this, that not everything is roses, and that not everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian, and that at this time not everybody that claimed to be a prophet was a prophet. And he was drawing their mind to the stark reality that there are some out there, agents of wickedness, that would seek to subvert and to deceive the New Testament church and would seek to corrupt and infect it with heresy. Now, how discouraging that must have been to those little group of believers that were listening to this. And in fact, that had already happened in that body of believers. Gnosticism had taken root in the church there, and that's what John is dealing with. And he's basically saying to them, you have to understand, not everybody that comes along and says amen and bless Jesus is legit. He says you have to try the spirits. And you have to consider him. No doubt that'd be discouraging. He's saying, church, there's spiritual warfare taking place. That's what he's saying. He's saying not everybody's a friend and not everybody's an ally. There's some enemies out there and there's a battle and there's a fight taking place. I can imagine as they read that, they must have dropped their head and thought it's just too much. But then they read a little further and John says this, Year of God, little children. Now let me tell you something. <laughs> there's no better place or person to be than to be of God. When you get discouraged, just don't forget you're of God, little children. You're still little children. You're not capable in and of yourselves, but you've got a big God. And he says this, you're of God, little children, who have overcome them. 
Don't you know that puzzled the church when they read that? Here they are trying to fight off the the heretical Gnosticism that is infecting their church. They're right in the middle of a deep spiritual warfare. They're fighting battles that are going to affect both time and eternity. And John looks at them and he says, You're of God, little children, and you've already overcome them. You've already won the fight. Don't you know they looked around and said, How could that be? It doesn't feel like we're winning. It feels like we're losing. A troop has overcome us. We're overwhelmed in this spiritual battle. John, how could you say that? He says, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The reality is this. Listen, I I know the the self-help speakers may tell you that you can do it, but you can't do it. But if you're saved by the grace of God, the one that indwells you can do it. You can't fight this battle and win it. And if you try to fight it, you'll lose it. But if you'll yield and follow in obedience to the Holy Spirit, greater is He that is in you. Who's He that is in you? The Holy Spirit of God. Who's ye are. He's within you. And if you'll yield unto Him, you can fight this spiritual battle. That's done through yielding, not through striving. Don't misunderstand me. It's not done through trying real hard. Somebody say amen to that. It's not done just through trying real hard, through getting your own game plan and trying it to the best of your ability. No, it's done through yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life day by day in the very minutest of decisions. But if you'll do that, then He that is within you will begin to live through you and out of you into the lives of this world and into the battle that's taking place. And your station as a child of God, because you are of God, little children, you're of God, little children. I, you know, I thought about uh, Miss Sue, you know, when she testified a moment. There was a verse came to my mind. That's what I was doing. I was sitting up here trying to track it down. I want you to listen to this. Now, you know this. In fact, we all know this, and we know that because Paul starts off this way, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now that's a lot to take in. And Paul knows it. You know, you know how I know he knows it? Because he says this, what shall we then say to these things? What's the sum total of that truth? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Listen, that, that's not pandering vain platitudes from, from a snake oil salesman. That's Bible. That's New Testament, King James, Bible, Christianity. If God be for us, is God for us? Ye are of God, little children. If God be for us, who can be against us? That doesn't mean that God's for everything you're for, but God is for you. And God does desire to see you have spiritual victory in your life through the Lord Jesus Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? And now like this, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? I like that. Let me tell you why. Because it segues into something. You see, I see in Genesis forty-nine nineteen, I see a reminder about our striving, and I see a reminder about our station. But I think if you look carefully, you'll see a reminder about our Savior in this passage. Look at the next phrase, what it says. But He shall overcome at the last. 
Now, I know what that means to the Jew. I know that means to the Jew that despite the entire collective world turning their hand against them, Christ is going to come back in power and in glory. He's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist with the brightness of His coming and with a sharp two-edged sword that proceedeth out of His mouth. I understand He's going to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. I understand that uh, the warfare that's going to take place, the physical warfare at the Battle of Armageddon, is going to be an overwhelming rout of the armies of the Antichrist. Uh, you know, Hosea describes it to us, uh, or Joel, excuse me, describes it to us, says that the armies of heaven are going to be running up and down the houses and into the windows, and it's going to be an absolute decimation of the armies of the Antichrist that day. I understand that's what that means to the Jew. I understand in a sense that's true even for the believer. But I think there's something interesting here that's worth noting. And it's found in that phrase, at the last. What does that mean when it says at the last? Well, there's a few things I found interesting. One is this. When you look at that Hebrew word through Scripture, you'll find out it appears about 14 times. And a majority of the times that it appears, it appears as the word heal. And you say, what does that mean, preacher? Why is that interesting that it appears as the word heal? Well, it's not interesting necessarily for the two-thirds of the time it appears as the word heal. It's actually interesting because the very first time that word appears in the Bible, it appears as the word heal. In fact, you know where it's found? In Genesis 3.15, the Bible says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You say, why is that interesting, preacher? Well, first off, it's interesting because it's the first messianic promise in the entire Word of God. It's the first prophecy concerning the coming of the Son of God. But it's also interesting because the context of this verse makes it clear that the bruising of the heel of the Son of God is indicative of what took place at Calvary. You know what this verse reminds me of? It reminds me of this. Can I just read it to you? I've already read it once. He that spared not his own son. That's Calvary. He that spared not his own son. That's the bruising of the heel. He that spared not his own son, that's the death of the Lord Jesus, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? One of these days, the Lord Jesus is going to return in power and in glory. And when he does, the spiritual battle will be over. Because when the potentate, when the omnipotent potentate shows up, the war is settled. When he comes, he's not coming for a vote. He's not coming for debates. He's not coming to fight the electoral college. When he comes, he's coming to reign. And he will reign. And when he reigns, he's going to reign in truth and righteousness with a rod of iron. And I understand that sin will still exist in the, in the secretude of men's hearts. And rebellion will grow. But outward sin will not be manifest in that great millennial kingdom. For the Lord Jesus will sit upon the throne. And in that time, righteousness will flourish all over the entire world, insomuch that even the rose will bloom in the desert and the lamb will lay down with the lion. The little child will play upon the top of a snake hole. I understand that in that day that all things will be set right. But I also understand that in this day that we live in, everything's going to be set right in that day because everything has already been set right through Calvary.
You see, the cross of Jesus is the vouchsafe promise to you and I that if He'd deliver up, if God would deliver up His own Son, shall He not freely give us all things? Do you think, listen, do you think God's just going to toss you to the side? We can lose spiritual battles, but I'm glad the spiritual war has already been settled. And when was it settled? It was settled upon Calvary. That's when the serpent's head was bruised, was crushed. That's when the final death blow to the mystery of iniquity was struck. And now we're waiting for things to wind down, but we have the sure-footed promise of God that no matter what we face, one day every hill will be made flat and every, every curve will be made straight and every mountain will be laid low and every valley will be brought high and all things will be set right. You say, it's discouraging to think I'm going to have to fight these spiritual battles. Well, that's true, preacher. It's, it's discouraging sometimes to fight those spiritual battles. But understand that ultimately the war has been won in Jesus Christ. We sing the song, Victory was won at Calvary. Victory that gave me liberty. You see, at the end of the day, when I look at this prophecy of Gad, I don't just see a, a son of Jacob. I see every one of us that faces spiritual warfare. I see the battles we face day in and day out. I see the crushing discouragement that would lay us low if we allow it to. But I'm reminded that at the end of the day, the sorrows and suffering of this world are only temporary. And there's coming a time when this vile body will be made like unto His glorious body, when the governments of this world will crumble under the government of the Son of God. When the world, listen, when the stone that's carved out of the mountain by the Ancient of Days is cast into the foothold of a one world government and the Antichrist empire comes crashing down and it's no longer a temple to the Antichrist, but now it's a throne for the Son of God will be set up. I know on that day, at the last, at the last, when what began with the bruising of the heel is culminated with the crowning of the head, that all things will be made right. All the suffering will be over. All the things we endure will be dealt with. But until then, friend, but until then, dear Christian, we must keep fighting. We must keep fighting. And, listen, and, and, and when I say fighting, I don't, mean, I don't mean fighting with a physical sword or a physical weapon. Uh, one day it may come to that just to protect our homes, but I don't believe we're there yet. I don't mean fighting with the voting box. Do whatever you feel like you need to. Come... Tuesday, here in Tennessee. I'm talking about the spiritual warfare that's taking place in our hearts and homes every single day. Don't quit fighting that. Listen, you're wrestling to keep your home godly. Don't don't stop fighting for that. You're wrestling to stay faithful to God's house. Don't stop fighting for that. You're wrestling in the prayer closet to see God get a hold of your loved ones. Don't stop fighting for that. Because a troop may have overcome you today. But the troop that lives within us, which is the Lord Jesus and the indwelling of the Spirit of God, that troop, that army, will be victorious at last. And on that day, I think all of us want to say we've endured hardness as a good soldier. Don't you think so? Don't give up. Jesus is almost here. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in. Jesus is coming soon. The world is winding down. Very likely, many of the people in this room might live to see the coming of the Lord Jesus. We're of that generation. What a blessing. 
don't quit fighting. We're in the last few moments. Don't quit fighting. We're in the 11th hour. Don't quit fighting. Stay in the battle and stay fighting faithfully for the Lord Jesus to have a godly home and a godly church and a godly testimony and to win people to Christ and to let Him have more of you day by day.